Welcome to the CEO.Digital Show Extra. In these episodes, Craig and I speak to business leaders for a deep dive into current technology trends and challenges. We go beyond high-level strategy to bring you an in-depth look at the issues and innovations not to be missed by the C-suite. You can find out more and stay up to date at CEO.Digital. Our guest this week is Jennifer Manry, the VP of Financial Services Global Industries Group at VMware. Jennifer is responsible for VMware's financial services strategy, market development, and financial services solutions. Before her current position at VMware, she was the CIO and Managing Director of Employee Technology and Employee Experience at Bank of America, where she supported over 200,000 employees globally. Jennifer has also held leadership roles at Capital One, GE, and Genworth Financial. She also serves on the advisory board for Women Who Code, which we'll find out more about in a second. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thanks. I am so excited to be here. Uh, let's get straight into your, your background and history. So you specialize in finance, but it's not where you originally began. Can you tell us more about how your career started and how you found your way into financial technology? And then as a third part to the question, why do you enjoy working in the sector? Yeah, absolutely. No, it, you're absolutely right that I didn't. I didn't start, um, and even in information technology, let alone in financial technology, I actually um, had a passion and love for engineering, and and that's what I kind of expected my life and career would take me on a journey towards. Uh, so I, I uh, started my career actually in manufacturing um, as an engineer um, because that's what I spent all my time in school learning about. And you know, after being in manufacturing. And seeing automation and how um, technology played a role in manufacturing of cars at the time, I really found a love for information technology and and moved into that discipline uh, with a lot of on-the-job training. Um, And over the course of my time in information technology, I sort of just morphed into a role at an insurance company, Genworth Financial. And um, that's where I probably, you know, started getting a lot of experience with technology that runs uh, financial services businesses. And it also happened to be where I got my start around human factors and this focus on uh, usability and information architecture. That really sparked something with me, this notion that you can bring together brilliant technology and brilliant engineering to solve a really complicated problem, but you can do it in a way that is um, intuitive and user-friendly, and it brings kind of delight or convenience to your end customer. And so that is sort of what I've carried on in my career um, through that time at Genworth Financial and then into Capital One and certainly into Bank of America, uh, where the last probably six years of my career I've spent on bringing great technology into the employee workspace and and really transforming what the digital workplace looks like. So I love this sector because I feel like it's constantly changing. Expectations of customers are constantly evolving. And so this need to be able to solve uh, complicated problems with technology, but do it in a way that's always meeting um, expectations of your customers, um, it keeps things really exciting for me. And now that you're working at VMware, helping to deliver that transformation to the world's leading financial services organizations, what does your role entail and what makes it an exciting time to be working within this field? Yeah, um, I'm just a few months into that role. I think it's not only a very exciting role, but a really exciting time to be in it. Um, You know, a little bit of background about the role 
it, it really is one that entails having a, a very deep understanding of the trends and pressures and even disruptors that are impacting the financial services industry, and then looking to see how those translate into business outcomes that a financial services customers are trying to achieve uh, you know, on their digital transformation journey. So the cool thing about this job is I get to bring the incredible products that VMware has created, but do it in a way where we bring them to market to financial services so it feels tailored to industry needs and industry problems. So it's kind of like building blocks or Legos that you, you know, take these um, incredible products and assemble them in a way that helps our customers in the financial services industry solve their unique problems. And they are our unique problems to financial services that are different from healthcare and different from manufacturing. Um, I think the time is great because there has been and, and seems to always be a lot of um, disruptors in um, the financial services uh, industry, whether that is uh, you know things like in the past year with COVID and how that changed interacting with um, end customers could have, you know, goes back many, many years, even to some of the uh, financial crisis that, that was in the late 2000s. So I think, you know, it's a really cool job and, and an exciting place to be because the disruption causes a lot of need for innovation. And with customer expectations changing, um, the disruption, you know, driving innovation, and then this, this need to be able to transform on really aggressive timelines it just makes for kind of like the perfect storm of big, complicated problems that need to be solved quickly with really fantastic technology. So that's why I love this job, because it gives me an opportunity to bring great building blocks and solve industry problems at a time where uh, transformation is high. I'm guessing the, the global pandemic also played a huge part in, in that perfect storm and was just another element that sort of um, helped accelerate that transformation. It, it absolutely was. I mean, I think most... Nearly every financial services you know, company has a digital transformation journey that they've been diligently working on. So, so this isn't a new phenomenon. I think what, what has really, like you said, um, accelerated that journey is the fact that the things that probably every company had on their timeline to do got shortened really aggressively in order to pivot into the reality of the, the COVID world, right? So you know, when, when customers can't come into branches or they can't meet, you know, with their their financial advisor or their insurance agent directly and personally like they used to, just much of this journey was accelerated for them. And you think about even the impact on the employee and the remote workforce, right? So I definitely think the last year has accelerated a lot of things that maybe were, you know, quarters and a year out into weeks and months for some of these companies. Yeah, it's astonishing what we'll do or what we're able to achieve when our, our backs are against the wall and there's a, a big problem to solve pretty quickly. So we spoke to you uh, previously and you know it was quite obvious that you had a, a passion for empathy uh, within design. Why do you think this is so important? You know, we're seeing more of this mentioned in recent years and do you feel like this has been previously missing? Yeah, I agree. I think um, the focus on empathy and empathy and design has definitely increased um, as a focus area over the past 10 years. Uh, I guess my perspective is this. when, If you think a long time ago, before we were doing a lot of digital interactions in our personal and consumer lives, um, you know, those interactions were fewer or less frequent, the interaction with a company was still based on interacting with another human, really. And so understanding you know, how your end customers were interacting with the digital product that you created probably wasn't as important because you were still you still had those in-person interactions um, that drove the business. 
But I think as more of these digital interactions have made their way into our lives and people now depend on them or find convenience in them, it really started to change the expectations for what and how people could interact. So I think now companies have to be empathetic. I mean, they have to ask questions like, how is my end customer going to use this thing? You know, why would they pick our product versus someone else's? And then they have to understand how people feel when they use it. Is it is the product intuitive? Is it beautiful? Is it convenient? Is it personalized, right? And so all of these things are uh, really important to understand now because there are increasingly more options for customers. They, they can... They know what good looks like increasingly more and more. They also know what bad looks like. Um, so the company's need for empathy and being able to put themselves in the shoes of their end customer and understand, frankly, how they're going to interact with the product is, is critical for adoption. It's critical for driving usage. Um, and even more these days, critical for driving stickiness so that the customers stick around and continue to use the product. So I think that's why, you know, as more digital interaction happens over the course of time, this need for empathy and design and understanding how the end user is going to interact with the product becomes more and more important because that's what drives continued usage. Yeah. And us as consumers, we are very, very fussy nowadays with very little patience. Uh, so I totally get that point. Yep. So talking about that, then as a nice segue into us as employees, because we are employees for companies and, and our particular experience within our own uh, structure. This has become a bit more of a focus, uh, you know, in the build-up to COVID. But obviously, since the pandemic hit, it's become even more so with all the remote working and, and how we interact with each other online and through our various portals. What's the relevancy within financial services? Is it is it similar to other industries, or are there stark differences? Yeah, I I say we could probably spend the entire time talking about um, employee experience and um, the digital workplace because you know I mentioned I've spent the past six years of my career really focusing on on what that looks like. I guess I'd say my take is this: there there was a time where people would come to work and they had better technology at their jobs than they had at home, right? I mean, I can remember a time early in my career that, that that was the case. But now I think the employees, their rich, immersive digital interactions that they have in their personal and consumer lives is setting their expectations for the kind of tools and experiences they have at work. And I always say like, if people don't take off their, their experience and expectation hats on their way in, in the door uh, to work, and then be okay with settling for a subpar experience at work. Like you and I just talked about, like people know what good and bad looks like. They can translate experience from their personal life to a similar experience at work. And they know, you know, well, I can do this at home and it just works. So I should uh, be able to do this at work and it just work. Um, and they're increasingly vocal about telling you about it, whether it's in annual employee surveys, you know, people are feeling very, very empowered to complain all the way up the chain of leadership and tell, tell us how it impacts their engagement, their productivity, and even in some cases, companies' abilities to attract and retain talent. So I would say probably every company in every industry is now focused on driving transformation in their digital workplace. Um, as you pointed out, it's even more critical that things just work because people are working remotely and there are uh, more variables in the mix that um, you know we need to support employees through. So I'd say it's a big focus point for a lot of industries um, and especially in financial services, how given the kinds of data and the kinds of uh, interactions that financial services have with customers, how they do that in a remote way. 
Yeah, and, and I mean, you've touched on it in terms of us as a consumer or us as a, an employee, talking about those experiences within financial services, because it's so heavily regulated, does that throw up any problems when crafting or creating these digital workspaces? Yeah, I'd say you know, regulated industries definitely have unique challenges or opportunities um, when it comes to creating the, the perfect kind of uh, digital workplace. I mean, you think about it, depending on the job you have within a financial services company, there are regulations the company has to comply with, and they even have to evidence that uh, compliance to regulators. And then when you think about the kind of data I mentioned that financial services employees are interacting with, I mean, that's like critical banking data or critical you know, personal information. Banks and insurance companies have to protect that data from the likes of cyber threat actors who are getting increasingly more and more sophisticated in how they um, attack those companies. So I think all of that comes to play when assessing the kinds of tools you can give to employees, because there are high bars, both compliance with regulation and compliance with information security bars, that solution providers must meet in order for the tool, you know, a tool to make its way into a company like a financial services company. So, um, you know, in some cases, employees may have an affinity for a tool they use in their personal life that is incredible and intuitive, and it could be an amazing consumer grade experience that you want them to have at work. But it isn't enterprise grade in terms of, you know, the needs, the information security or compliance needs that um, a bank, for example, must adhere to. So I, I do think it presents, you know, regulated industries present some unique challenges um, because your employees won't understand that. They're just going to want the thing that they want. Um, and so it's an interesting opportunity to create a digital workplace experience that meets the needs of an enterprise, especially one where it's highly regulated and has unique information security challenges, while also um, providing a great experience for employees. It can totally be done. And I think, you know, there's a lot of interaction between solution providers and financial services companies. And, and certainly there's a lot of influencing of capabilities, but it does um, present some unique and interesting challenges to try to create something amazing um, that to meet employee needs in an industry that's so heavily regulated. Yeah. And, and you touched on cyber attacks. So, you know, as, as these businesses are becoming more and more digital, uh, there is more opportunity for cyber attacks. Although, you know, cyber attacks, I think uh, one of the leading causes is through the actual employees themselves, through the humans. But looking at the last year, you know, from what we've understood, chatting to other um, security experts, cyber attacks on the rise. I just wanted to find out from your perspective, has there been more risk in the past year as the employee experience has gone more digital or have organizations generally handled this shift pretty well? And then uh, what can be done to improve? Yeah. Uh, protection. Yeah, certainly. Um, even before COVID happened, the sophistication level of cyber threat actors was on the rise, right? I, what I'd say is, first, I think organizations have done a really good job pivoting to remote working, given the circumstances. Um, having been a part of that pivot in my prior role, I know firsthand the work that um, has to go into pulling off something like that successfully. So um, I think um, under a tremendous amount of pressure, organizations pivoted to remote working in a way that uh, really protected the organizations that were um, the financial services customers that were doing this. So I'd say and it, you can even look at this uh, report that VMware published recently called Modern Bank Heists. There was a, uh, a note in there that the world's most dangerous cyber criminals dramatically stepped up their criminal activities during COVID. 
and financial services companies in particular saw a significant uptick in attacks. Um, so you think you mentioned the the way to to do this is the engagement with the employees. So certainly an uptick in things like social engineering, more phishing that leads to more ransomware and malware, uh, really all in an attempt to get at credentials and also to be able to move around from application to application in a, in a way to attempt to monetize um, the data that they could get their hands on. So I think cybersecurity organizations have undertaken uh, a lot of additional activity to protect their companies against these attacks and to detect an issue as fast as possible to limit the impact if there was an attack. Things like implementing multi-factor authentication on applications, you know, increasing the amount of in- education they do for employees on, on what social engineering can look and feel like, what phishing looks like, um, to, to really uh, beef up uh, you know, employees' understanding of when they might be, uh, you know, involved in a cyber event, and then implementing better tooling, whether it be better telemetry, better malware tools, even implementing things like artificial intelligence and machine learning um, to help identify and alert, you know, cybersecurity organizations to an issue. So, I definitely recommend checking out um, the Modern Bank Heist report because I think there's some really great input in there from some brilliant security experts give some analysis on what's going on in the world of cybersecurity, but the sophistication level and the amount of attacks happening, I don't, I don't think any of us see an end to. Um, so there's certainly a lot more uh, aggressive activity happening in information security to protect these companies. Yeah, it doesn't matter how big or small your business is. You know, I think everyone is susceptible to these attacks. And so we've got a, a very small business and we still are, you know, uh, fighting these cyber criminals uh, on a weekly basis. So let's move away from financial services just for a little bit. Uh, there is, a, you know, you've got a really interesting background. And something I noticed on your, your CV um, was Women Who Code. Can you tell us more about that and what you're doing with that group? Yes, I would love to tell you about that. So I actually sit on the advisory board of Women Who Code, which I think is a, a really phenomenal organization whose mission is to, to inspire women to excel in technology careers. I think as an organization, we want to see women represented in all levels of technology, whether that's engineering or board members, tech leaders, you know, executives, you name it. Um, women Who Code has about 200,000 members worldwide, and the network is really focused on helping women reskill and upskill, um, creating a community for women to leverage for things like advice and networking and mentorship. Um, so it's a, it's a really, their cause is near and dear to my heart, and their mission and vision is, I think, a great one. I got involved with Women Who Code many years ago when I first started work in women in tech and the underrepresentation of women in STEM and tech-related jobs. And at the time, there were a lot of us looking at the career journey of women, starting all the way back from early education and like middle school aged girls, all the way through, um, you know, their, uh, you know, high school and college education into their careers and really trying to understand why women were dropping out at key parts of that. It's, it's called the, the phenomenon is called the leaky pipeline. I actually felt women who code were uniquely positioned to address women who were already in jobs and ensuring that they had every resource available, whether it was technical skills, non-technical skills, mentorship, you name it, that helped keep women in tech jobs and bring even more of them into tech. So I love the work that Women Who Code does. I think they address a very key part of the leaky pipeline and they're absolutely making an impact. 
was there, are there any data points to suggest what the main reason is um, for, for dropping out of jobs? It, you know, it really, it, at different parts of the pipeline, different factors came in. And so for career professionals, I think, you know, some of the things that we, um, we would see in the research would indicate lack of role models. Um, so, you know, not being able to see a person like you in, a, in, in the role or career path that you were on, right? So if you looked, if you were heading for tech leadership or tech executive, not seeing someone, you know, that, that could act as a role model, I think other key things, uh, mentorship and sponsorship, right? So helping career professionals with the kind of advocacy and sponsorship that, you know, everyone needs in order to get pulled through for promotions and, and be moved into new jobs. So I think um, certainly the role models, the mentoring and sponsorship are key things that we need to continue to focus on for career professionals. Yeah, that's coming up time and time again when you speak about diversity. If you, if you can't see yourself in that role, then the goal just seems probably too far away. Right. It's like unattainable. If you can't, if you don't see anyone like you, it seems like it's not an attainable goal. Yeah. I know we're all trying to do stuff to better that and to increase diversity. I'm seeing positive gains at the moment, which is, which is really good. How, what's a, is VMware doing um, stuff around diversity and inclusion that you can share? Yeah, so very much. Um, I think, one of the things that really attracted me to, to VMware um, from a culture perspective is their absolute devotion to diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? And so, and it's not just for women, right? They're focused on, you know, every aspect of diversity and inclusion and making sure that we not only have the right resource groups set up to, to provide those role models and sponsorship and mentorship, but also um, really key activities. So VMware happens to be um, a partner to uh, Women Who Code, which was uh, a really awesome thing to learn about as I was moving into my role here. And they've got concerted efforts. Um, I was even just talking to a woman um, who was the head of an effort to bring uh, women in India back into the workforce, back into the tech workforce. And so lots of very deliberate training, um, deliberate uh, certification, getting these women to have the skills so that they could re-enter the workforce, not just for VMware, but just the tech workforce in general. So that's just one example of a multitude of them that really demonstrate, I think, VMware's passion for representation and the power of the perspective that all of us bring because we've all experienced different things and all um, you know have different life experiences to bring to the table. Exactly. That's great to hear. And then for the listeners, how would you get involved in Women Who Code? Yeah, well, so a few ways. I think um, the first, certainly go out to their website and see if there is a network in your community, right? With, with as many uh, people that are involved, I mentioned over 200,000 globally, there are networks in pretty much every major city, I think, at this point. Um, I've been part of uh, bringing two networks, uh, one in Virginia and one in Charlotte, North Carolina to um, fruition. So there's always uh, a lot of activity to get these networks up and running where we have um, groups of women who are interested in, uh, you know, being a part of an organization like Women Who Code. And, and certainly we know that they can't be in every city, right? So these virtual communities are also available. So you can look to see, you know, where you might have one in the city that you're in, or maybe even a virtual track that you want to be a part of. The organization is growing um, leaps and bounds. And so I think there are plenty of opportunities to, to get involved. And look, we're always looking for people that can help us 
um, think about the kinds of skills, the kinds of like technical and non-technical skills that we should be providing and, and really bolstering the network for people so they have good mentors and role models. So I think there's a lot of different ways to get involved. Great. Thank you, Jennifer. And while I've got a woman who codes with me, am I correct in assuming you, you dabble in the world of code? Well, as a strategic leader, you probably don't code too much anymore, but did you used to? I did. I did. And it was actually, um, you know, if I go even way back into what I loved as a kid that got me into engineering, it was, I like to tinker with things, right? And around the house is probably super annoying to my family <laughs> because I would take things apart to see how they worked and, um, you know, put them back together again. And I, you know, at a very early age, what, knew I wanted to be an engineer. So you can imagine that for someone who loves tinkering, you know, when you move out of a, a kind of engineering job where you can do hands-on tinkering, you're kind of virtual tinkering with um, code, right? And so the ability to put your hands on a keyboard and create something is really, I think, one of my favorite parts of technology because it's almost instant gratification, right? As opposed to building something that takes a long time to see come together, you can actually create something in minutes and hours and and see the the fruit of the work that you've done. Um, and so while I don't uh, I dabble in it as much as I used to when I started my career, I had no background in technology when I started in information technology. So I had to learn by doing and learn by putting um, fingers on keyboards and seeing how things worked. Um, and so I think it's a really fulfilling career. And one, if you if you have an interest to solve problems and you like tinkering, you, you get a lot of enjoyment out of. So I'm quite interested to know, was there anything that you tinkered with back in the day when you were younger that you couldn't put back together? Oh boy. I'm sure I probably took apart a lot of things that then I just left a little pile on the floor for someone to help. Um, I, I did take apart um, a radio control, like one of the um, RC cars um, that I was given um, to see if I could figure out how the remote actually, or the controller actually made it work. And I'm pretty sure that w once I put it all back together again, it never really worked the same way, but don't tell anyone that we'll just keep that our little secret. For, <laughs> for <when> I... <laughs> I do. I sometimes, I wish I was that inquisitive when I was younger and, you know, cause it, like you say, you just have to take it apart really to see how it works. And it starts from there. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. Thank you. So let's go back and talk because I'm, I'm going to sort of guide the conversation to how we wrap it up, talking about a chief wine officer event that you're going to be speaking at. I believe you're going to be doing a, a UK and a US one. But let's talk more about uh, digital workspaces. What's it been like for you this past year since you started at VMware? Do you have any lessons to share about making a digital workspace work? Yeah, I think one of the, um, I'll tell you one of my hesitations, uh, you know, taking on a new role at a time where you can't actually um, see the, you know, we, I did all my interviewing um, virtually. I do all my team interaction virtually. And so there's a little bit of hesitancy that comes with taking on a new job in, in the COVID times, right? Where everything is virtual. So I think a couple of things I would say, invest extra time, both as a, if you are a people leader or a people manager in, in the networking, right? Or in the mentorship and the sponsorship, because you, you have to go, you have to do a little bit extra to make the culture of an organization be felt through something like video collaboration tools, right? So I think from a manager perspective, spend the time with your newly onboarded employees um, to, to make sure they can feel the culture of the organization, despite not being able to really step foot in a, premise, you know, a physical premises right now. 
And I'd say the other piece is if you think about like creating a digital workplace and enabling a remote employee, I do think companies really need to, to um, back to that empathy thing, right? Understand what it feels like to onboard remotely, right? So just about every company that is focusing on employee experience is also trying to create a phenomenal first impression for a new joiner on their day one, right? Um, because that is the first impression they're going to have of the company and the technology they're used. That can be challenging in a remote situation. Uh, so I think even more focus on eliminating friction, making it as seamless as possible for an employee who's likely going to be shipped all their equipment to their home to get um, up and running on day one when they're probably not going to have like, you know, someone to come to their desk and help them with that support if they get into an issue is I think one of the biggest focus areas uh, companies should be really, really doubling down on um, because that onboarding experience, you only get one time to make an impression and making that as uh, intuitive and easy as possible so they can get up and running is really important. We've uh, we've gone through a little bit of growth spurt ourselves, um, uh, probably about forty percent, and uh, we've been hiring like crazy. And it is such a challenge getting that balance right and making sure everyone's okay, and um, you know, making sure they don't feel isolated. So, you know, this really great insight there. And um, thanks, Jennifer. So, um, let's talk about the future of work. There's a lot of talk about the future of work. You know, the hybrid working model. Um, you know, there's things in the news now where Google employees are are freaking out because they've been told they actually need to come back into the office at some point. What does the future of work look like for you? Yeah, I, I you, you use the word hybrid, which is um, the word I was going to use to describe it as well. I think that we're going to have to um, confront or are already confronting how we support a hybrid work environment. I think that employees now have an expectation that they'd be able to work from home for some parts of their jobs, right? And, and in fact, there, there are times where people can feel more productive at home because they you know, get like quiet time and they can be absolutely 100% focused on what they're doing. But there are other times where you can't replace the kind of collaboration and the kind of work that happens when you're in person to get that work done, right? So I think about, you know, uh, even, even in the past week, how many times I've said, gosh, I, I wish that we could just all be sort of in a war room where we could just tackle this problem together with all of us. Cause it's hard to, it's hard to do that via video collaboration, right? Like there, there's a time where I feel like being co-located together is really critical because it's hard to replicate the way that feels and the output of that via even the most brilliant collaboration tools. So I do think that future of work is going to be hybrid. It's, it's how you give what is now, I think considered it was one time a perk, to be able to work from home. Now I think employees will feel like it's a requirement that they be able to work from home at some point. So, um, you know, how you balance that with also really effective um, work that needs to be done, you know, in a co-located sort of dynamic um, where people actually come back into the office. So I do think it's going to be a balance. Um, I think we will have to iterate through it to find out, and it will probably differ for every company, right? But how, you know, how how we iterate through what just the right balance feels like for each um, company and how to navigate the what is now I think an expectation for a hybrid work environment. Thanks very much, Jennifer. So this is the the moment uh, we're going to move on to the quick fire round. Some fun questions here. Okay. So I quite like this one. What would you say your boss thinks you do versus what your family thinks you do versus what your your friends think you do? Oh boy. Um, well, I will tell you, my children 
think I just um, get to get to play with devices and new technology all day. Um, and so my, my girls will tell um, their friends that, that I control the internet at home <laughs> and, and I'm, and I'm their end user support for all their devices because that's <laughs> what I do with my regular job. So that's what they think I do. Um, and I, I would say, uh, you know, my, my boss, um, you know, who's, who's, uh, he and I are still uh, getting to know each other. I think he knows what I do during the day, which is really looking at the trends and the disruptors in financial services and coming up with how I feel like we should uh, pursue transformation using our great products. So um, I, I hope he, <laughs> I hope I hope he's more attuned to what I do than my children um, at this point. But you can certainly see there's a, uh, a lot of daylight between what what my boss knows I do, what I know I do and what my kids think I do. <laughs> OK, great. And then um, let's look at uh, your, what's your technology guilty pleasure? You know, um, I have become a very avid reader. Um, and so I would tell you my, the piece of technology that I probably have in my hand um, the most is my Kindle. I am constantly reading and, and actually it's increased a lot over the past couple of years, um, likely because I haven't been able to leave the house for a year. Um, so, you know, kind of escaping into books has been a, a really great way to kind of break up the monotony. But I'd say that's probably my biggest uh, tech guilty pleasure is, you know, having that thing in my hand. It's so strange how you, you say you, because you're staying at home, you're reading more, whereas I'm very much the opposite because I'm not leaving the house, I read less, you know, because in London here, we, you know, using the train and stuff like that. And now if I try and read in bed, I'm passed out within the first page. It's quite frustrating. So but, uh, I have my funny story for you is that I will routinely wake up with the Kindle. Like I fall asleep holding the Kindle and I will wake up hours later still clutching the Kindle as if I'm reading the Kindle's turned off and I'm still holding it in my hand, you know, because it's become such a, a really great escape. So um, even when I fall asleep, I still hold that thing as if I'm reading it. <laughs> and are you um, are you reading anything good that you can share with us? Gosh, I have read so much over um, the past two years. I'd, I'd say, um, so you're, you're going to learn really quickly. I'm kind of like a sci-fi and fantasy um, person. I don't read business books because I, I work in business. So I feel like my escape has got to be into something that is different. Um, read the wheel of time which is like i don't know robert jordan books. oh yeah like yeah. sixty thousand pages of reading that took me the better part of like six months to get through um that it was really awesome read the witcher series so mm -hmm. you know a, a book that has also turned into um you know a television series so mm -hmm. those are some of the top ones that i've really enjoyed over the past year Great. Uh, yeah, the the wheel of time uh, robert jordan actually passed away didn't he before he completed it through. yeah yeah and you know what is if you've if you read if you read his books he has a very distinct writing style so for another author to pick up that and carry it forward and not you can't really tell that the writing style changed is really impressive. I thought did his son not um, contribute or was that just the story in the media? He may have, but I I read about the book series before I picked it up and I just kind of knew I was going to fall in love with it and reading it. But I was really and so I watched for where you know his his writing ended and where the new author's writing began and i it was really seamless so really impressive work interesting yeah i've also read i think majority of that series but uh, always good to <laughs> to hear from another person who's read it so 
let's uh, talk very quickly. Did you have any early influences through your career trajectory and, and who were they? So I will tell you, because every time someone asks me this question, I always have the same answer. And, and the person that I feel like was the earliest influence and the most influential was my mom. You know, I, I mentioned at a really young age, I picked up this love for engineering. I was, I still vividly remember being nine years old, sitting on red shag carpet. I'm going to date myself with it. Um, and being surrounded by NASA annual reports, because at the time I was like, wanted to be an engineer and an astronaut and telling my mom, like, you know, she was in the kitchen doing something. And I said to her, look, I've decided I'm going to go on to be an engineer. And, and she was like, I have no idea what that means, but like, you should totally do that. Like you should, if you are very passionate about it, you should never, never let anyone, including your own self, tell you that you can't accomplish it. Um, so she kind of created this no limits, like the sky is the limit sort of mentality for both me and my sister, both of whom are engineers. Um, you know, both of us took on engineering jobs. And I feel like she was the biggest pusher for like, no matter what, what anyone says, you can do this. And no matter if you look around and don't see people like yourself, you can still do it. Um, and so I think that advice, that notion that like, you know, I was in control of this and I could, I could take on anything that I put my kind of head and heart towards has always stuck with me. So she was my biggest influence and still like, I can still hear her voice now, you know, when I take on new um, adventures saying like, you can do this, this is, this is your thing. Don't let anyone tell you you can't. And even if you're the only one doing it, you can still do it. Thank you, Jennifer, for sharing really beautiful story. A lot of the people that we speak to here are, uh, well, their parents are their, their inspiration uh, and their early influences. So that actually wraps up the episode. So thank you so much for joining us on this podcast, the CEO.digital show extra. Uh, you will be joining us again at a couple of events that we're hosting in June through our sister brand, Chief Wine Officer. This is where you're going to be speaking about reshaping digital workspaces within financial services, utilizing multi-cloud flexibility. And uh, there's lots to look forward to, to that for the guests who are listening. So if you see it, do register the events combine a little bit of wine tasting, some education, some business discussion, some networking with your peers, and also a healthy dose of competition through the Chief Wine Officer experience. So make sure you, you visit our website and sign up for that if you can. This has been awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time with me. I enjoyed our conversation and I'm really looking forward to the digital wine event. Thank you so much to our guests for listening to us. If you enjoyed the conversation, then subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for your time and speak to you soon.